0: Good evening. Good evening. Hope you're all doing well. I'm doing well. I had my afternoon nap. <laughs> I'm a fuddy-duddy. So thanks for coming. Uh, when we think about what I'm going to deal with tonight, the benefits and the limitations of archaeology, I, I, we're not going to go through a passage as such. I, I, I do want to emphasize as we do this that um, The Bible, and what it affirms and tells us in His Word, is always what's authoritative. And that is always what gets first consideration. There are things along the sides of our study of the Bible that contribute to our understanding of Scripture. There are things in culture and context and language and other things that are part of interpreting God's Word. Archaeology is one of those things. And um, so, we're going we're try to try to walk through with you the, the benefits and then warn you about some of the limitations. Because uh, along the way, websites, uh, commentaries, Bible study books are going to say various things about archaeology, and at times there are going to be shows like Discovery Channels and History Channels, which can be very frustrating. Um, we'll make affirmations that seem to say archaeology kind of blows up the clarity of God's Word. You. Uh, toss that out the window. Okay, it, it's, uh, so we have a measured understanding of the benefit of archaeology, and that's what I want to help you with. Again, I'm comp- compressing all kinds of information into a short session, so hang with me. But I uh, hope these will help you. I did give the PDF of the PowerPoint to Pastor David, who I think the secretary would have it. If you were really interested in having the PDF, you could ask her for it. So... Um, So the, the, I'm going to go ahead and pull mine up, so I can see it better. Almost there, I should have had it up. All right. So a, a basic definition of archeology span as, as a starting point, it involves the systematic study of the material remains of human behavior in the past. So you have people who have lived in the past time who have gone on, they've, even after society has been replaced with another one and they've left remains. And in, in this, this writer adds that uh, the primary goal of archaeology is to discover, observe, preserve, record the buried remains of antiquity and to use them to help construct, reconstruct ancient life. Now, I'm going to expand that here in a minute, but I want you to realize, and I'm going to say this again, the main purpose of archaeology is to help us understand how people in the Bible lived. And uh, because we don't have we didn't live then we we don't have an inside track on all that they knew and understood. There are things about their culture and life, and even in the Bible, that aren't part of our world. And so archaeology can help unearth, and I'll show you some examples of that that uh, can help us understand Scripture better. So the value of archaeology then has three kinds of value. One is an apologetic value. An apologetic apologetics is the defense of the faith. And so it has this value of giving us confirmation, encouraging our hearts, giving us a strength and position on the authority and the clarity of God's word. But I want you to notice there in that under apologetic value, I have archaeology does not prove biblical historicity or factuality. If archaeology can prove that the Bible is what it says it is, what can it also do? It can disprove it. So, we aren't looking to archaeology for proof. I say here, what the Bible says about itself, inspired inerrant, divine authority, does not need, it doesn't need confirmation from external discoveries. So, if I'd ever studied archaeology with God's Word alone and what the Bible says about itself, I would be totally confident in the content of God's Word as being authoritative and a guide for my life, eternal truth. But these external discoveries that we can benefit from an archaeology provide, an arch- I call them archaeological high fives. Way to go. Nice job. It, or, or a ring of truth or a ring of certainty to places, people, events, customs presented in the Bible. So these confirmations are not necessary to me believing that this happened or that person really existed that's referred to in the Bible. It's just Kind of deepens our confidence in something that is based on God's word. So that confirmation is not essential to the Bible's intrinsic value, based on what Scripture says about itself. And this is going to be one of the big differences between, I mean, a conservative using archaeology and and others, because then I have a like a I have a trajectory of Bible interpretation I show my students and. And all the other factors, you know, the biblical presentation of history and Hebrew language or Greek language and all of that, where does archaeology fit in that learning process? And for me, if everything else is 16 point font, font, archaeology is 12 point font. It It has a role to play, it can help me figure out stuff, it can add to my understanding, but it doesn't bulldoze the clear statement of Scripture. So then, uh, like, like John 17:17, 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be per- complete, equipped for every good work. So we, we may be able to demonstrate a correlation between an archaeological discovery and a biblical event. I have an article, if you ever felt like you couldn't sleep and you wanted something that would help you sleep, I could send it to David and bore you with it. It's a kind of a footnote-rich article, and what I wrote it for originally was for lay people, and it became something else. But it, I'm trying to demonstrate a, a way to correlate history and archaeology that's credible, as opposed to something you he, hear in the Discovery Channel and so on. I think I think we, if we, everybody has an interpretive worldview when they come to these things, and and so their worldview, their assumptions or presuppositions, kind of take their view down a different road. And so what I'm saying is is the, these, the correlation between archaeological discovery and biblical event doesn't prove the event, but there's evidence that buttresses what Scripture says. It's a confirmation, and we'll try to push back on that a little bit. So this next slide, the point is here, and I'm not going to stay here long, those are circles of areas of evidence. You have kind of archaeological artifacts, pottery, Weapons, coins, you have linguistic kind of literary information, inscriptions that are found, and then you have kind of biblical text. And the point is, if I had number three, biblical text all by itself, I'm a happy, happy guy. The point is, as far as credibility is concerned, when you have evidence for more than one realm, that event, that person, that practice has greater credibility. Now, uh, let me explain something here. We think about, a, we're going to talk about an example like the Tel Stella that includes an inscription that talks about a king of Israel being the, of the house of David. And that was the first extra-biblical reference to David. And for, for scholars in the archaeological world, it was like, wow. Because it's, it's outside of the Bible. So you have an evidence of David as a historical personage who had a dynasty of kings referred to outside the Bible as well as what the Bible says inside the Bible. And that gave that fact of David's historicity and starting a line of kings greater credibility. I, I slept just as well the night before that was discovered as well as, well as after, right? It isn't like I, I was overwhelmed with belief, I already had that but it's one of those archaeological high fives. So the the purpose of it is to realize if we have evidence that comes from more than one circle, it does, to a larger audience, give credibility to something the Bible says. And if you're engaged with unsaved people or people are questioning or wondering about God's Word, those things just help you. You can't rationalize them and convince them into salvation. It just knocks down a few walls that they throw up because of modern media. So credibility doesn't mean truthfulness. So, when we think about uh, the, this issue, the, the, I gave some definitions here at first. Uh, and, and the first one is an apologetic value, that it, there is a defense benefit of archaeology. Think about an illustrative or explanatory value. Like cultural and historical setting. At times, archaeology makes an otherwise unclear practice understandable. How many of you have harvested barley or wheat with a scythe and put it into sheafs and gone out to the field and brought them into a threshing floor and then winnowed the result of your threshing work. Well, Well, none of you. So, And what's a threshing sled? Amos, a threshing sled or sledge is something that's part of a prophetic word about God's judgment coming on Damascus because they ran a threshing sled over the Gileadites. What in the world is it talking about? So, what we have here is ancient harvesting practices. You have on the left side, there is a threshing sled or sledge. It's, it's like a little toboggan. People who don't live in snow country don't know what a toboggan is. I, I mentioned that the other day in a, in a class, and there are some odd looks on the face of Californians, right? So, I've ridden down many hills on toboggans. All right, so you have like a toboggan with a less of a, a curve at the front, and on the bottom of you, you turn it over, and you're going to pound into that wood, you're going to pound in sharp rocks, glass, metal, something sharp. And then what you want to do is you're going to take on the right side of the threshing floor. It's normally a fairly flat rock bottom floor that's up kind of on a hill where the wind will blow. Not in a, down in this cistern or down away from wind. So you're going to bring in all those sheaves of barley or wheat from the field and you're going to spread them out on the threshing floor and you're going to have your threshing sled with either some stones piled on top of that sled, or somebody, one or two people sitting on it to give it some weight, and you're going to have a couple of oxen pull that threshing sled around the threshing floor, and those sharp rocks, metal, whatever, that's running over the, the stalks of that grain are going to chop that up into pieces and loosen the kernels, which is what you want to get after. And uh, and by the way, when you think about a threshing sled, then it, it It just helps us understand that part of the agricultural process, like the prophecy in Amos that God likens through the Amos the prophet, serious treatment of the Gileadites, those folks living on the east side of the Jordan River, to have have them all lay down and run a threshing sled over them, which is pretty horrific now sounding. It was horrible, violent treatment. And so without understanding that, that agricultural feature, you're kind of in the dark and what in the world is that talking about? Well, the next step, and I don't have this here except look on the left side. You have toward the back of that threshing sled is a, a winnowing fork where you would come to this threshing sled and you'd, you'd take all those little pieces, you'd throw them up in the air and you have some wind blowing and the, the cut up stalks are light wind blows the chaff away. Oh, what's at the bottom? It's the kernels. You're going to take the kernels and Put them through a sieve to get rid of all the other small junk, and there you go—you make your bread. And so uh, it just helps us understand a cultural reality. You have also olive presses. So here's an olive press on the left, a real one, and then on the right side, a an artistic drawing of one. The point is, in that circular rock item, they've carved out a channel around. The, this olive press, and that big old circular rock, either with a guy, a couple guys on the end of the, the stick, or a donkey, is going to force that rock to run over all the olives you put in the channel of the olive press and make it into mush. That's step one. And so there's work. You're going to you're going to go out to the olive trees at the right time, September, October, and you're going to go to the trees and have a stick and smash, smash, smash on the branches, and the olives fall down. You put a tarp underneath them and gather up the olives and bring them in. And then you, you're going to do the, the mush process, right? This is a non-technical description. The mush process. And then you're going to gather up all that gooey, oily mush. And then you're going to go to step two, which is you have an olive press. So there's one in Hot sore, where you see, um, you see this kind of a circular rock area, and it has it has a, a little carved uh, channel in that rock thing on the right, with those blackish kind of bags, and then a rock on top of it. So the, the point of those black bags, you can see it better on the bottom right of the image. Those are these like burlap kind of bags. You're on a rope, and you put your mush in them, fill it with mush. And then you're going to stack those three or four high. And just by sitting on top of one another, what's going to come out? The well, oil. And you can see in the bottom right, they have a place to gather the oil. And the, doing it without any weight on it is called the virgin, the virgin oil, the first press, the best stuff. That's the stuff that would go to the temple, to the tabernacle for God. And then when you start just adding a little bit of just, just the... The rod with the rock on top of it, just that is going to press some more out. Then you can put some weights on the end of that rod, and it's going to squeeze more. And as you go along, the point is, as you go on, you're going to have a little more water showing up in the oil. It's maybe not as good. And so you have the best for God, tabernacle temple. You're going to have things for medicine. You're going to have some things for cosmetics. You're going to have things that are fire starters at the bottom. You're going to have flavoring for food. Oil is just a massively important element in Israelite life. And so you have that, that image of an oil press. When you think about the oil, you know, in the, in the mush process, going backwards, yeah, in that mush process, that that's why, both in in um, Old and New Testament, they use different words for it. The idea of applying pressure, uh, trouble, uh, being squeezed, is an analogy that kind of points back to things in life they would understand. Squeezing the oil out. Uh, same with grape. Grape uh, pressing in the party-like atmosphere, and yet, this is the pressure of it. So, it kind of can help us understand some words that point back to these practices. There are lots of other things like that, but those are two common ones. If at the end you have questions, again, feel free to, well, I'll let you come up. I'll wait up here if you have questions, but otherwise. And then we also have knowledge of people, places, things, and events. Sorry. Um, I'll go back. It's uh, you have things uh, like horned altars, boundary stones, implements, housing, things that aren't necessarily in our, our bailiwick, in our common knowledge. Here's, here's a horned altar. And so a horned altar is, guess what, an altar with horns. It is an altar has has rocks that are carved uh, at the four corners. Now, a, a horned altar, this is a problem because it's in the uh, Bersheva. It's, it's away from the, the temple. And ongoing mosaic sacrifices were meant to be at the temple, and that altar had horns. And the point of the horns, if you have a, a sacrifice with a set-apart animal that you've brought and it's been cut, killed and it's been gutted and skinned and now they're going to take either the whole animal, like a burnt offering, or part of the animal, and you put that thing up on the altar and all of a sudden fire, like if you've been camping at times, the, the wood collapses and the thing rolls off onto the ground, got to start over. It's no longer sacred. And so it's just a pragmatic deal. But and if you remember with, uh, when, when Solomon was beginning his reign and David said you need to take care of these guys, including Joab, who ran to the altar of the temple and hung onto the horns thinking that would save his bacon. I didn't, because they're not holy in themselves. And the issue here isn't the horns, it's the fact that in Beersheba, south of Israel, the Negev, you have an altar that's made for ongoing daily sacrifice. So you look at this, this in itself isn't wrong, but it's if you ever you your way from Jerusalem, to have a one-on, one-off again sacrifice to celebrate something, to inaugurate something, to, you know, be- begin a battle with the enemies. You could have a one-on Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's not a problem. But it's not an ongoing deal. It's not a place to worship God and have the whole Mosaic system. That was to be done in one place, the place that God chose in Jerusalem. So here the problem is you have dressed, carved stone. If you're going to do it in the field, like with, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you're going to have, he's going to find field stones and stack them up into an altar and have a place on top for the wood. Because it wasn't meant to be this ongoing worship of God outside of the place he chose where his glory was present in the temple. A boundary stone. I don't think you have any of those in your yard to show your neighbor where your land is. But that was common. You'd have writing on it to say, this belongs to Mike chrysanthemum, and don't move this, or, you know, you'll have trouble. And so, and so when, when Proverbs says, don't move the boundary stone of your neighbor, let's say Brett and I were neighbors, he's a loser, I'm the good guy. And every night he comes out and tries to move his, my boundary stone about 10 feet my direction so he gets more land. Well, The problem is just, besides being theft, he's the loser, it's covenant treachery, because God allotted the land. So why the big deal about a boundary stone? If the land was allotted by God to the tribe, to the clan, to the family, it was meant to be in their hands for perpetuity, to be dissatisfied with what God gave you is covenant treachery. And so that's why boundary stones are a big deal, but we don't necessarily have them where we use them. Okay. Are you hanging with me here? Okay, I need to hurry up. Okay, then we have people. And I'm going to just talk about one of these, and the rest of them are in the PowerPoint. Ahab, he was a loser for sure. Ahab and Jezebel, that dear couple. Um, He was a bad king for sure, and there are all kinds of things to say about them. But I'm, I'm saying archaeology fills in supplements or understanding about biblical characters. So Ahab was a king. And we're told from Assyrian literature that the the place in the circle here on the map is called Karkar. It was a city near in the area of Syria. And the Assyrian Empire, northeast of where Babylon was, the Assyrian Empire wanted to gain influence to the Mediterranean seaboard and was gathering steam and was coming with an army. And all of the smaller people groups in this region gathered together in an alliance and said, we're going to try to keep him out of here. And there's a battle that took place at Karkar where, and, and it says here in the next page, there's this there's a stone monument called the Kirk Monolith that uh, where, where the King Shalmanes III writes this. And he talks about going where he's going and he destroyed and burned the city of Karkar. But the very last line, the one I made the biggest, describing who brought stuff and people to the battle 2,000 chariots and 10,000 troops of Ahab the Israelite. And so it just kind of fills in, supplements, biblical history that gives us a full understanding of dates and things like that that just confirms but adds to our understanding of biblical history. There are lots of other examples of that. It also has archaeology as a supplemental value. It fills in things not just of a biblical character. Here's the Stella, He was an Egyptian pharaoh um, in the 19th century after Ramses, a, a major pharaoh of Egypt. And he had to campaign in Israel. And the, the thing about this is, this is the first reference to Israel in a non-biblical source being in the land of Israel, being in the land, in the land of Canaan and at the very end. Israel is laid waste, he says he wiped them. Israel is laid waste, and the seed is not, like he destroyed them totally. Uh, kings were generally given to overstatement. And if you were a scribe, you did not reduce that. You wanted to trumpet their, their accomplishments, or you wouldn't be a scribe any longer. So it isn't like we're going to take those an authority, but it, the interesting thing is he lists Israel with other both cities and regions in the eastern Mediterranean seaboard as historical realities in the 1200s, really um, in, in the 1100s B.C., which there's a whole reason why that's important that you may not care about but necessarily, but it just helps you understand how archaeology can supplement in information that isn't even referred to in the Bible that fills out what we know. The next one is one I refer back to, the Tel Dan Stella. There was a dig at, at Tel Dan where uh, there was a dig going on for at least 30 years. And uh, the, the two leaders, the director and his surveyor photographer, it was after the season was gone, they, they were profs at Hebrew University. They came back on a Shabbat Eve on a Friday to do some last measurements and some transit shots and stuff. And, and as uh, Rita Cook was coming down the hill to this one area, she, her, her transit and her photo stuff was kind of getting out of place. And so she sets them down, and as she picks them up, she looks across the courtyard, and she sees a rock with writing on it. I mean, it was right time, right day, the sun, exactly the right angle. Nobody had seen it before. And in that thing, there's a, a red box and a black box, a lower box, and that box that's set out on the bottom left it says that uh, there, there's a Syrian king who's bragging that he did a, did a bunch of things. He's lying for all of them. And he says that he killed Ahaziah, the king of Judah of the house of David. And that's that case where it gives us credibility. It adds to the weight of what the Bible said, that David was a historical person, that David began a dynasty of kings. Now, I can tell you right now that the the liberals in the world of biblical interpretation fought every which way to try to throw this out the window. Oh, it was this. Oh, it was that. Oh, it couldn't be that. But um, they still aren't granting full historicity to the biblical narratives, but it just is one of those things that I'm confident in God's word. I was confident before this was discovered that David was historical. It just adds that credibility. That it's an archaeological high five. There's some more here. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over. There's a guy named Jehu, a king who was not a great king. He killed he killed, Ahaziah in Joram and he wiped out Baalism, and he wiped out the line of Ahab, but he, he chose to go down the worship of other gods. And then you have um, to summarize here. Sorry. Um, I'm going. There we go. So archaeological discoveries related to the biblical lands offers the interpreter of Scripture various benefits. To, they help us reconstruct the patterns of ancient biblical life oil olive presses, uh, threshing sleds, winnowing forks. It gives us a better understanding of context and passages that we wouldn't understand those agricultural implements, that we were missing things from our interpretation. Although it doesn't prove the Bible, number two, it can provide confirmation. It illustrates, number three, various cultural implements, practices, four, Expand our understanding of various biblical people, places, events. Five provide us inscriptions to give us a more clear picture of the biblical and ancient worlds. Okay, then in um, the next slide, the stuff's small again. If you want the PowerPoint, uh, they have it. It gives you some books that deal with kind of walking through main discoveries. The 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 web pages are. I, I, I did some revision this afternoon, but it was already in the. This was already in the pipeline. And so I'll try to send the new one, but uh, it has uh, web links that people put out every year for the greatest discoveries of 19. This is 1920, this is 1923 is what I included in my revisions. And an epilogue, I just uh, point you uh, to, this is uh, from an article, and I list it in the the, um, the PowerPoint where you have all of these people are confirmed archaeologically. I mean, it just... When a person tells you that uh, the Bible rarely gets it right historically and it's kind of tossed together and shot from the hip, baloney. And there's other other infographic images I can show you that demonstrates that we think about any other piece of literature found in the, from, from biblical times to now, that the Bible has more. Copies available, and the Bible has closer proximity to the time of writing, by far. And so historically, we have lots of confirmation. I depend on God's word for my confidence, but this is just some of those things that are just encouraging. So again. um, Okay, limitations. Um, so, So it's a background issue. The basic challenge in the ongoing debate in the scholarly world and even in other realms is Bible versus archaeology. Does one side have more authority? The big concern is how did the plain statements of Scripture fare when related to what seemed to be the objective facts of archaeology and history? And again, you have this interpretive worldview. You have a set of assumptions a person brings to the table that affect how they view the Bible or archeology span or both. And, and I give you lots and lots of examples of, I can, but um, we'd be here too long. So uh, the big concern is, is that how do they, how do they uh, inform each other? And then to be the important reality, evangelicals do not need to prove the history of the Bible. And so what we have to be careful of is there sometimes there are websites there's one that shows up every, every couple of years where somebody will post, you, they, they found the skeletons of the Egyptian army in the, red, in, in the Gulf of Aqaba, the Red Sea. Kind of proving the Israel crossing of the Red Sea. What's oh, a bunch of baloney? And people repost that. Isn't it fun to see the Bible proven? And, and the, the point is, is and I, I know I'm popping a bubble here, I apologize in advance, kind of. Um, there's a video that's seen many, many eyes, it's been it's re- repeated by many about a, 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 a process that some, a couple of guys went through. It was back in the 80s, where they were talking about the crossing of the Red Sea and they take you on a boat ride. They go, you go down to the, to the Sinai Peninsula on the, on the east side and it's the Gulf of Aqaba and they come to a place where they say that the Gulf of Aqaba is very, very deep and there's this one place where there's a, a plateau about 200 feet below the water, instead of 1,000 feet, crossing over. And they say that's where the crossing took place. And they have an underwater camera go down with, that takes a picture of a coral encrusted chariot wheel on that platform. And that's like, see, this is where they crossed. And then they talk about stuff on the other side that shows this is where the crossing took place. Whether it took place or there or not isn't consequential to me. I think they're wrong. And I, I have a whole a so whole host of sources I could give you and talk about that. But one of the guys died of cancer and his son later on said they planted that for evidence. So when they talk about this posting about you know, skeletons of the Egyptian army found in the bottom of the Red Sea proving this is where it happened, it's like, please don't jump on that bandwagon. You're not helping our cause. We have to always try to temper what comes across, especially on the internet with unverified sources. And uh, on the last one, the benefits page at the bottom of one of those slides, I believe I said uh, there's a, there's a my, my co-teacher at church at home, uh, Grace Baptist, Todd Bolin, who's a Bible prophet at the university, who is the picture guy. He has great photo collections. They're so, so amazing. Um, he has a blog. And so quite often, if there's something new that comes out, give him a week, he's going to let the dust settle. he's going to say, here are some responses to that suggestion. He just is a great help. And it's his his website. If you look at Bible Places blog, you're going to come up with it. So, it just would have to be careful. In our desire to benefit from archaeological discoveries, there are times that the trumpet blows a wrong answer, a wrong conclusion. We have to be Mild faith, focus on the God's Word being our authority, and let the dust settle, and look for other voices that confirm that's something that points to a verification of or an archaeological five for Scripture. You can ask me about that later. Okay, so the important reality is, I've is said this already, but this is, I'm talking about the limitations of archaeology. We have to remember it doesn't replace what the Bible says in text Evangelists do not need to attempt to prove the historicity of the Bible. Spurgeon wrote, scripture is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion, just turn it loose. It'll defend itself. And we believe God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword and he's able to cut through hearts and impact lives and convict of sin and provide a clear understanding of the gospel. And so I'm all for archeological I-5s and demonstrating credibility points and clarifying our understanding of how to interpret passages through understanding the life of in that period of time. But I'm, and in, 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 in apologetics are fine. I understand the benefit of, and I've had to engage people that have embraced an atheism, a new atheism that uh, they, they just need to be brought up front with, confronted with uh, some of the evidence that's been found that gives much more credibility than they suggest. So I mean, that has a role to play in how we engage a a dark world, right? But I I want you to understand that I'm not not interested in getting into the prove the Bible effort too much. I want to embrace its authority and have it be the source of conviction. But that's one of the challenges because there are those that are gonna give greater credence to archeology span than I would. And it sometimes takes them down the wrong road. And, 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 and uh, I'm, I'm gonna to try to address that. Some of these slides, I'm gonna just go over. I wanna leave time for some questions afterwards too, for you to come up and ask me some things. So I, I, my point here in in the next slide is that everyone, brings an interpretive bias to the science of archaeology. I mean, it's just like the Bible. When, when you read a passage and a person who doesn't believe that there's a millennium in the future, it's happening now, because of our theological assumptions ahead of time is that we've built over the years, when we go to a passage, they're going to interpret that passage differently. We have an interpretive bias, right? I call it an interpretive worldview. Everybody brings bias to the scriptures, which is, isn't bad because we have a whole theological package we're thinking about. I'm summarizing here. We have ideas about who God is and what the Bible is and who the Holy, 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 who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in this day and what is this passage teaching. We try to do it inductively. We try to do it interpreting the scriptures normally or uh, literally. And so that's true in, in Bible, but it's also true in archaeology. Um, what role does the Bible have in interpreting archaeology for people? And, and, and what is their view of history, of, of Israel's history? So I'm saying here, every interpreter has pre-understandings about Scripture, and every archaeologist has pre-understandings about how to deal with archaeological evidence. That long quote there, let me just summarize it. The guys are saying just that. They're saying that just like interpreters of Scripture have an interpretive bias that affects your interpretation of Scripture. When they come to an archaeological discovery, a pot, a wall of a building, a coin, a weapon, if you hold it up to their ear, does it say anything? No, it's mute, mute, mute. It doesn't talk. And so what they're going to have to do is they have to look at that arrowhead in comparison to other arrowheads to figure out what time it took place and why it was there, and they're, they're reconstructing things based on a lot of other information. And so the, the gathering of archaeological information, let me assure you, is very, very scientific and data-intensive. I've been on a few digs, and, and it's, uh, they, they have laptops at every square. They have a the guy who's in charge. They have folks who are bringing stuff. They're tagging things. They're it's, uh, they have ground, ground radar, they have drone shots, they have soil analysis, they have all kinds of things that are going on in the gathering of information that is very, very scientific. But that's not all that brings uh, archaeological data to us. It's the interpretation of the data. What does it tell us about life, and how does that relate to the Bible? So, that's where sometimes what you read in the internet, or what you see at a Archaeology magazine, like Biblical Archaeology Review, which I subscribe to and it's good. And not many conservatives writing it, but I need to be current in the world of archaeology. There are times it's frustrating, right? So we have to realize that everybody's going to bring an interpretive bias, and so don't just let get taken astray by conclusions without maybe testing the waters, looking at Todd Bowen's Bible, places, blog, or, or whatever. But, but but what I want to spend my time on here at the very end is uh, to make sure you understand the fractional nature of archaeological evidence. Not factional, like causing division. The fractional nature, how, how small of an amount we have. So, first of all, remember how little of, keep in mind how little of what was left by ancient civilizations has been found and understood. John Currid and a uh, an archaeologist, says, what archaeology provides for the reconstruction of culture is by nature fragmentary, piecemeal, and incomplete. Yeah, so the next, the, the, I'm sorry to go back. I, I, um, so I, well, that's what I'm trying to get at. It's fractional, it's piecemeal. Now, I'm going I'm to fly through these slides just to you visually kind of a presentation of the idea. Uh, a scholar named Edwin Yamauchi wrote a book many years ago called The Stones and the Scriptures. And In that book, he had, he had a chapter where he made five statements about the fraction of that. And, and it gets to be a smaller and smaller and smaller amount. So, here, here it is. Um, the, the, this picture is how much material from ancient times is available to study today. I thought somehow, how did I miss that one? Sorry. Yeah, we're oh, sorry. That's the one I want to be on. How much material from ancient times is available to study today? So that circle, that oval, is like everything in antiquity that was deposited. The old depicts all of that. So let's consider how much survived and was found by archaeology. So here's the fraction that—and uh, I have some longer texts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over. You can read through them if you get the PowerPoint PDF that talks about how much stuff has not survived— I mean, you have some cities that uh, ended up being destroyed or went out of use and buried by dirt, and they were like the free Home Depot, or Lowe's, whatever you prefer, for your rock project. You can go, oh, marble, well, there's some nice granite, and take it home. Or you you have erosion, happening over a period of time. You have critters that grab stuff and take it off someplace. You have just stuff that rots and goes away. So how much... Has survived. One example is that we know that there are hundreds of synagogues in Palestine and Israel in the New Testament period, but only 10 have been found. Okay. Well, we're missing some information, right? So the point is the smaller circle inside the big circle is just an attempt to show what has survived. Now I'm going to go faster at this point. How much of that has just been surveyed? Well, when we do a survey, like in, 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 the, in Israel, they'll have archeological classes at universities and they'll get 40 people in the class and they'll go out to an area that hasn't been surveyed and they'll do a line abreast of single person line abreast and they're gonna kind of be about five feet apart and they're gonna walk over hill over dale. I and mean, they're gonna go through an area and an area that hasn't been covered this way. And what they're looking for, they're looking for puddles of pottery, they're looking for a set of rocks that are in an organized line like a wall. They're looking for signals of a settlement so they record that settlement, so an archaeologist has another dig they want to do. They know places that haven't been touched. And there are scores of places that haven't been touched. They've done 6,000 sites for surveying, and hundreds more are discerned every year. And so, how, how much has been surveyed? How much has survived? Smaller amount. How much has even just been surveyed? Just surveyed. Smaller amount. So we have our circle here, and image inside the one that's how much has survived. The next one is how much has just been excavated, and I'm, I'm not gonna it's just a very small amount. So you have there that little red circle of sites excavated, small than what's survived, smaller from what's excavated, tiny compared to everything that's been deposited. You have how much has been examined seriously. And when you have a dig you have this voluminous information for scholars who have gone through that carefully to be able to see what it says and apply it to knowledge. I, I talk about it there. So we have yeah, it's that little tiny dot in the middle of the red oval that's how much has been excavated. And then we have how much material has been published. And it's an even smaller dot there. So, what we have is, with uh, Yamauchi, he writes, based on legitimate uh, statistics of how much was in each of those phases, in the end he says, what we have is six one hundred thousandths of all the possible evidence. Six, so it, it, it's six Slash one hundred thousand is the fraction. <laughs> I mean, if I had a a piece of dust that was six hundredths of some small measurement, it'd be uh, worse than microscopic. So, so what we have to do? Uh, well, let, let me let me get to that, and then I'll. So here's here's analogy I use. Um, this iceberg analogy. So if you look at the iceberg, all that's on the iceberg is material that's been deposited by a society. That's, that's, that's the oval in the other image. And so how much has been uncovered through archaeology? Well, what I'm saying is, in that whole iceberg, if that's talking about what's been deposited by society, we're not talking about everything above the water has been discovered by archaeology. It's the tippy-tippy top of the iceberg represents the amount of material that's been discovered through archeology. span Well, am I trying to discourage you? No, no, I just want you to realize that when a person makes a statement that archeology span demonstrates that this event didn't happen or that person didn't exist, or they make a sweeping conclusion that runs roughshod over the clear teaching of scripture, toss it out the window. I mean, you, we can't make sweeping conclusions based on what's not found a common saying is absence of evidence does not equal evidence of absence. And that saying is used in military and in medical treatment with cancer. It's used in all kinds of areas. But it still rings true. Just because we don't have evidence of someone or something doesn't equal they never existed. Especially when you think about How little from archaeology has survived? Okay, then uh, just I'm going to end here with uh, suspicion or confidence. What do we conclude based on what we do not find? In that quote, what they're saying is scholars broadly have this hermeneutics of suspicion, where when they won't accept the Bible as credible and authoritative unless it's been proven by archaeology. Give me a break. I mean, I don't have to pinch you to know you're here, right? I, I, it just is, it's like the Bible is, is, uh, is suspected. It, 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 what they say here at the end of the quote in bold italics, they, they tend to ask for corroboration of the text before the text is taken seriously rather than asking whether evidence shows that the text should not be taken seriously. This, this next one always puts a smile on my face. Should we be surprised? You mean those old people, Israelites, didn't leave things behind, intending on us finding them? They didn't go away that day and arrange everything in their home to be a totally representative example of life in the Laird world? So when a nuclear bomb blows up, when they come back 100 years later, oh, that's what the Laird family did. A scholar writes this. One aspect of archaeological evidence in need of constant recognition is its random nature. Ancient people did not bury their possessions so that archaeologists might discover them. Huh. Wow. Nor did they leave their, in their houses or their tombs fully representative selections of all their belongings, except maybe in the Egyptian tombs where they had everything including the kitchen sink, because they expect to be going on to the afterlife. What the archaeologists can recover, therefore, is only partial... And always incomplete evidence for ancient activities. Summary Archaeology can help us interpret God's Word well, but it's essential to realize that we don't need archaeology to prove the accuracy or value of God's Word. And since comparatively little of what a society deposited has been found, we need to be very cautious about giving archaeology, discovery, archaeological discoveries, significant authority over the meaning and historicity of God's Word. So, do do I value archaeology? Yes. Is it helpful? Yes. It uh, gives us concrete evidence of things that sheds light on how people lived to help me interpret passages. It adds information to my understanding of history. There are lots of things that are, are good about archaeology, but it's way overplayed and Various circles, especially on what's not found and what that shows that the Bible isn't true about. So take some of those statements with a grain of salt or toss them out the window. All right, so I don't know.